0: We turn in our Bibles to 1 John 3. 1 John chapter 3. We'll read this chapter in connection with our treatment of the sixth commandment, Thou shalt not kill. We hear the inspired word of God. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God, For sin is the transgression of the law, and ye know that he was manifest to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not, whosoever sinneth hath this hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous." He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We know that we have passed from death unto life. Because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good And seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him. How dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. As I stated, we read this in connection with our treatment of Lord's Day 40, found in the back of our Psalters on page 22, in question and answer 105, 106, and 107. What hath God, what doth God require in the sixth commandment? That neither in thoughts, nor words, nor gestures, much less in deeds, I dishonor, hate, wound, or kill my neighbor by myself or by another. But that I lay aside all desire of revenge, also that I hurt not myself, nor willfully expose myself to any danger. Wherefore, also the magistrate is armed with the sword to prevent murder. But this commandment seems only to speak of murder. and forbidding murder, God teaches us that he abhors the causes thereof, such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge, and that he accounts all these as murder. But is it, is it enough that we do not kill any man in the manner mentioned above? No. For when God forbids envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, peace, meekness, mercy, and all kindness toward him, and prevent his hurt as much as in us lies, and that we do good, even to our enemies. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the sixth Commandment, as many of the other commandments of God, is virtually completely lost in our day. It's lost in the thunder of artillery, the drone of fighter planes in countries waging war against one another, the bloodshed daily in the city streets of our country, pulling of the trigger through video games and computer games, and the growing hatred and Revenge in the hearts of many who have been wronged. They've been treated in an evil way. And they want that revenge. The sixth commandment squarely faces us with this question. What kind of a neighbor are you? And what kind of a neighbor am I? How do you treat those around you? How are you treating those closest to you? your spouse, your children, your parents, your family members? What kind of a neighbor would your neighbors say that you are? If someone were to ask them, what would they say about you? God in his creation of the world and the governing of the human race has seen to it that humans live among one another. God's desire is not that we be separated from each other. God created fellowship as that which is essential within the creation. To live in connection then with our neighbors is what God intended. But it's difficult, it's challenging, and it confronts us with our own sin and sinfulness. The neighbor is at work with you, at school with you, at home with you, worshiping here at church with you. Your neighbor may be your faithful husband, your faithful wife. Your neighbor may be your unfaithful husband, your unfaithful wife. It may be a supportive and faithful friend, or sibling, or boss. Or it may be one who's cruel, one who's disloyal, one who's foolish, and one who causes all kinds of grief and sorrow in your life. It may be a cruel boss, it may be a lazy employee. We all have neighbors with whom we have to do. And God now says, don't kill those neighbors. Don't even desire to kill them. Protect their lives and live in love toward them. God demands even more. He says, don't hold grudges. Don't have evil thoughts. Resolve matters of conflict that you have among one another. Show love to them. Even those who are treating you wickedly, show kindness, show compassion, show love. Beloved, God raises the standard so high that we're required to fall on our knees and say, I can't do this. How can I begin to maintain that love? God pricks us because we're brought to see that that love is not present within me by nature. And God drives us to the cross where we find forgiveness and mercy and strength through Christ and through His Spirit. What God does here in the next three commandments, including this one, is He lifts a protecting shield. First of all, over life, and then over marriage, and then over our possessions. He does that with the next three commandments. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, and thou shalt not steal. That's God's order. Life, marriage, possessions. Now tragically in our day, possessions are more important than life. And people do not hesitate to kill for the sake of something that they desire. Whether it's a few dollars, whether it's drugs, whether it's possessions. God sets a whole set of defenses around the precious treasure of life. And God calls us to preserve and to keep that life so that those who attack life are disarmed and their sin is exposed. Now the possibilities of attacking life are so diverse. It can be done by a gun. It can be done with a weapon. It can be done by thoughts, by words, by gestures. It can be done with a Cruel tongue that's razor sharp. One can destroy by looks. By myself or by another, the catechism says. Not just me, but how am I influencing others to think evil of another person? God comes, beloved, with all authority. And God demands, put your weapons away. Lay aside those tools that you are using for murder. And you need to walk in love one toward another. All those means by which you threaten life, whether your own or others, put them away and walk in love. And so we look at this command, the sixth commandment, noting the prohibition, the demand, and the mercy Beloved, first of all, the Catechism requires that we lay aside a number of things. Lay aside all desire for revenge. Now when the Catechism talks here about laying aside, it's talking about putting it away, fleeing it. It's not laying it aside as though we would lay aside our Psalter so that now we can pick up our Bible. So that we keep it close, but we just want to lay it aside for a moment. Rather, the idea is this. You realize that this is dangerous. You realize the impact that this can have in your life and in the life of those around you. It's like that of coming across a tarantula spider or a poisonous snake. And rather than taking it to yourself, sitting it down next to you, you run away from it. You recoil from it. You flee from it. That's the idea here. The idea is that there are thoughts and there are things in your life That are so dangerous that you need to flee. You need to run away from them. And they're not just things around you. They're also things within you. Powerful emotions that would threaten to destroy you. You need to put them off. Lay them aside. And you do so, so that those things do not destroy you. Now what do we lay aside? We lay aside... All desire of revenge. Now we realize not all anger, not all hatred is to be laid aside. There is some legitimate place for anger and for hatred. Two exceptions are laid out in the catechism. Wherefore also the magistrate is armed with a sword to prevent murder. God so loves life that God will protect it with a shield of his command, thou shalt not kill, but also with the avenging sword of justice. And this sword is given to the authorities. God pleases to use the authorities to prevent murder and to punish evildoers. And so when someone kills someone else, then the magistrates have the authority to take that one to court. If that one is found guilty, then that one is to be subject now to the death penalty, as is the case in many of our states. Romans 13 calls that minister, that ruler, a minister of God to exercise revenge on God's behalf. That one is to defend God's commandments and specifically, thou shalt not kill. No one is allowed to wrestle that sword out of the hands of the government in order to take it to themselves. God has given it to the magistrates. Before the flood, things were chaotic. Every man was doing what he desired to do, what he deemed as good in his own eyes. And men and women were filled with antagonism. They were filled with the desire to get revenge and they would accomplish it. There was no authority, which by the grace of God would intervene in punishing and avenging death. But after the flood, God set up that rule. Genesis 9 verse 6 authorizes the government to punish murderers with the death penalty. That command came to Noah. It continues today in its validity. But another situation that arises in connection with the authorities is also war. And we understand that exception as well here to this commandment. Nations are called to protect their citizens from those who would be aggressors and those who would seek to destroy the peace and the freedom of that country. And so a man is at time required to go to war on behalf of his country. And he does so in order to defend the citizens of that country. And he's not responsible for war then as he is required now to take up weapons in the defense of his land. Now we realize that there also can be exceptions in that regard as well though too. That if one takes undue pleasure in murder and killing for murder's sake, then even the government is going to hold that one accountable perhaps. If someone's bragging about all of the destruction that they're able to accomplish, and they're taking pleasure in it. Such as condemned by God's word and by God's commandments. But God uses the avenging sword as a tool in his hand to make social life <coughs> among mankind possible. The murder of wicked Cain and Lamech gave rise to the destruction that God brought about at the time of the flood. Just as the Old Testament begins with murder, the first thing is Cain killing Abel. So the New Testament experiences the same. We have Herod killing the children in Bethlehem, we have Herod murdering John the Baptist. And as time went on, Christians are murdered. Today, men are not more advanced. Murder appears everywhere in our society in different forms. God says, Thou shalt not kill. The law of the land says, kill, kill your baby if you don't want it by way of abortion. One who would lay in wait for an animal's young to be born and would kill those babies of that elephant or of that animal as soon as they were born would likely face prosecution by authority. And yet the world condones one who kills his own offspring. Suicide is murder. Instead of saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, he goes the way of murder and as a coward takes away his life. And so we put aside, flee, run from those desires, get help when those desires are beginning to rise up in our mind. But even the slightest desire to murder whether it's a baby in the womb, whether it's oneself, whether it's another. Lay aside those desires. That's the command here. Run, flee from them. This commandment requires of us that we never consider such a desire. Now Jesus expands in Matthew 5 the application of this commandment to all who hate. If you think evil towards someone else, and you express it by calling them names. You make yourself guilty now of murder. And First John 3 here expands it even more. All those who hate their brother are guilty of murder. We're called to lay aside all forms of hatred. First John 3 here, verse 15. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hatred is an intense loathing of someone that rises from one's sinful nature. It views that one as despicable for whatever reason. It desires to cast that one away, to never have to deal with that person again. Hatred wants that person out of his or her life. It would not bother that person if that one was dead. Now, of course, few are going to admit that. Few are going to acknowledge that that really is their desire. But that's the desire of the nature that comes out. And God says, that one is a murderer. God says, you need to flee those thoughts. You need to run for your lives away from that spirit of hatred. Now, a number of internal aspects of that hatred are laid out here in question answer 106. God teaches us that he abhors the causes thereof. Envy, hatred, anger, desire of revenge that he accounts all these as murder envy jealousy or resentment towards someone else he has something that i don't have maybe he's richer and more well off than i am. maybe he got first place and i ended up not able of getting that position maybe he has an office in the church and i don't have an office in the church maybe he has a better status or she has a better figure We both accomplish the same things maybe. We both suffer the same, but that one gets advanced and I end up suffering and experience trouble as a result. And so resentment begins to build within me over against that one. Envy is a manifestation of hatred. Job says in Job 5.2, For wrath killeth the foolish man and envy slayeth the silly one. We need to take that to heart. The one who envies is silly. He's foolish. He's not conducting himself in a godly way. He's not carrying himself as before the face of God, acknowledging that his situation and circumstance is all according to God's fatherly hand. That God is the one who has distributed all things. And God's the one that orders and ordains our lives for our good and for our salvation. The one who's moved by envy is killing himself. Again, we need to take that to heart. Flee envy. I'm robbing myself of life. I'm not only murdering the neighbor, but I'm harming myself. That was the spirit of Cain, who killed Abel. The Bible says, flee that envy. Secondly, anger. Now, Jesus never forbid anger as such. We realize that. But it's anger without a cause. It's anger that's motivated by sinful desires. In Matthew 5, anger without a cause is spoken of. A holy, unholy, unrighteous anger. We know the admonition, sin. Be angry and sin not. So that there's a righteous anger that rises up in us with regard to a hatred for the things That are sinful and the things that are contrary to God. There's also that anger that rises up because of a love for self, because of an insult. Someone hurt my feelings. Someone said something now, and I don't like what they said. One who is angry has had his own person perhaps demeaned in front of others. Lay it aside. Go forward. Flee from that desire. Colossians 3 commands us, put it off. Run away from it, lest it destroy you. Revenge. Now we're not talking here about harmless pranks in order maybe to pass the monotony of a day. One can pull pranks and good love toward one another. But the catechism here is speaking of a malicious intent. And that malice is important. Because he brought shame to me and now I'm going to bring shame to him or to her. The catechism does not speak only of revenge but of the desire for revenge. So again, it's getting at our sinful nature and our desires. I want to pay him back. I want to get ahead. I'm not just going to get even. Lay it aside, God says. That's not the manner in which you are to conduct yourself. Speaking things in a malicious way, that doesn't build up. Using sarcasm to one another is not going to assist one another. It's going to cut down. It's going to destroy. It's an expression of hatred. Gestures, the cold shoulder, the dirty look, the refusal perhaps to meet one's eyes. We all know and have experienced such. Deeds, what kind of deeds is a person performing? And what will children say if they see that person performing those deeds? The question, beloved, that we face is this. Why do I tolerate in my heart and in my mind these manifestations of hatred? And why do you? If we just think about this for a moment. If after church we would go outside and someone would pull out a gun and shoot someone who was sitting next to them in the pew, that would have an impact A profound impact that some of us might never get over. But why then can we sit next to each other in the pew and think it and think that we have an excuse to think it? After all, I'm not pulling a trigger. I'm not actually doing it. I'm just thinking it. There's no excuse, beloved. We need to pray for grace to lay aside every internal manifestation of that hatred. And Jesus by the inspiration of the Spirit here, says to us in 1 John 3, verse 15, ye know this. You know this. This isn't something new to you. God has implanted His law in your hearts, and you know what's right. You know that those thoughts are wrong. Put them away. You know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. That one is abiding in death and that one's end will be everlasting destruction. That one can't really pray. He can't really worship. He can't experience the joy of salvation. If a man's heart is filled with hatred, he has no life within him. He's living a continual death. And so God says, lay it aside. Put it away. Treat it like that poisonous spider That you run away from it. You do not want to tolerate it in your life for a moment. That's God's word here. But then positively, that a man love. Love one another. And in 1 John, we have that repeated admonition. Here in chapter 3, again and again, that admonition is directed toward us. And we confess, love is all of God. And again, that's the emphasis of 1 John. Love is of God. God is the one who has worked his love in the hearts of his children. And that's the astounding opening to this chapter. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. We stand before God's word and we stand in awe. Behold what manner of love, knowing who I am, knowing what I've done, knowing the thoughts that run through my mind, Jehovah God has embraced me in love and He's taken me into His family. He's made me one of His sons and one of His daughters. Behold, this is the wonder of the love that He's shown to me. This great God who's embraced us in love, who's given us to know the height of all love in His love toward us in Jesus Christ, a selfless, sacrificial unending love now comes to us and says love one another the command of God is clear it's unmistakable love your neighbor as yourself now there's no misunderstanding of the love of God for the child of God the child of God is humble the child of God is driven to worship by the wonder and the reality of the love of God for him To all eternity, we will stand in awe for the wonder of the love with which God loved us while we were yet sinners, undeserving of it. And there's no understanding of that love apart from God and apart from the wonder of His Spirit in our hearts. God loves Himself within His own being with an everlasting love. And God shows that love now toward a people Whom he has chosen for himself and upon whom he has bestowed the gift of his own son. He gives of himself for us. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. Love is giving. And he gave his own son to stand in our place that we would not perish but that we would live. Love is a bond that unites two together. It's a bond that unites those who are perfect. And that's the wonder of what God has worked. God has taken, by the wonder of his love, a people whom he has now perfected in Jesus Christ and bound us together with himself. A love that's so intense that nothing can separate us from the wonder of that love. We are glued to God and we are bound to him with an unending love. In God's covenant love, Not only are we bound to Him, but then we are bound one to another as those who are fellow saints by faith. God's covenant involves that love and that fellowship. And God calls us now to view one another as fellow members of God's covenant, as those that are precious, as those that are dear to us. In the Spirit, God views His Son as precious, as beloved. And God then views us as found in his Son. And we in turn then respond, I love the saints. In them is my delight. As we sang from Psalm 16. They are precious to me. Love is always active. Love is not negative, but it's positive. And so that proof that we love our neighbor is not found simply in the fact that I'm not killing them. That's not enough. We can neglect to do things for all kinds of bad and wicked motives. But positively, we show love. And we do that with concrete actions. Love seeks the good of another. Love is kind. Love shows compassion. Love doesn't hold grudges. Love forgives. What is true of God within his own being... God now works within us by a wonder of His Spirit. And He fills us with His love so that we are equipped now and able in a creaturely way to show that love one toward another. And that love seeks good by giving. Giving of oneself for the sake of others. That's the love of God. He gave His own Son. And now that love moved within us moves us To give of ourselves for others. In the covenant of grace, these elements then are precious. We're bound together with God. God has given to us to know that we are precious in God's sight. And we seek then one another's good. That's the calling that God gives, by giving of ourselves for the sake of others. That's a marvelous expression of God's goodness and God's grace. God overcomes our selfishness, overcomes our sinful desires, and works that giving in our hearts. Now, why would God ever seek us? Why would God ever show that love to us? Again, behold what manner of love God has shown us. This is the motivation for us to love one another. Just think about what God has done for you. Why did God do that for you? He didn't do it because you were so good at loving, because you were loving Him. While you were an enemy, you were unloving. While you were walking in a manner that was rebellious and continued to do so. He loved you. And He continues to love you. And He continues to preserve you. And now you must do it also toward those around you. Not just those who are easy to show love toward, but also those who who like myself and yourself are difficult for God to have love. Those who are disagreeable, those who rebel against you, those who make promises and then they don't keep them. Those who are always turning their back on you. Out of gratitude, out of thanksgiving to God, you show love. And you do it sacrificially. You do it unendingly. You do it in a manner that reflects that love with which God loved you. We're called to love our neighbor for Christ's sake. Now, we understand the various aspects of the application of this to our lives. That love for an ungodly neighbor or an ungodly individual in our lives is not going to reveal itself in a bond of fellowship. 1 Corinthians 6 says, Come out from among them, be separate. So if there's not going to be that Bond that we share with them, that fellowship and communion with God. Our love does not allow us to take them and to hold them dear and to count them as fellow recipients of the wonder of God's grace with us. But our love for the ungodly neighbor shows itself in that we seek their good. Just because they're ungodly, just because they're sinful, doesn't justify any kind of evil attitude or action toward them and we realize the power of this even in marriage the admonition that is directed to husbands and wives that we dwell with even an unbelieving spouse and that we continue to show that love and kindness peradventure God using us as a witness to bring about their conversion the highest expression of love then is seen in our willingness to witness to them concerning the love of God we testify to them concerning the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ we bring the gospel to them we desire their salvation we're motivated to say something to them about their sinful walk and conduct in love because we desire that they turn that they repent and so we seek their material their physical good where the ungodly neighbor whom God puts on our path is poor and destitute and needy we assist them We bring meals. We give them a coat. We provide them the means that they need if necessary for their provision. The love of the neighbor may be seen in giving in the name of Jesus. Perhaps a gift card or something to assist them. Or that love may be seen in our saying to them, I'm not going to give you money. Because we understand that. Should we give them money, it could be used in in an evil manner so that God give us wisdom as we interact then with those whom God puts on our pathway who are showing themselves ungodly and unchristian in their walk. But as God gives opportunity, we don't rise up in pride over against them. We pray for the grace of humility and we pray for the ability to love them even as God has loved us. Warning them about sin, warning them about hell and about the judgments of God for those who walk unrepentantly but especially beloved we love the neighbor who's one in the Lord with us what a beautiful what a wonderful privilege God gives us God gives us a bond of fellowship and communion with fellow saints that often is stronger than that of brothers or sisters God binds us together so that we view that person as dear to us not despicable, not troublesome, not in our way, but as one who's precious in God's eyes. And we really seek that one's good. We pray for the grace to do so. Beloved, the beauty of God is seen in the church, in members who love one another, who forgive one another. Now, what does that love look like? Again, we can look at specifics here as they're laid out in question 107 to show patience, peace, meekness, mercy, and all kindness toward him and prevent his hurt as much as in us lies and that we do good even to our enemies. Patience. No one is perfect. We're called to be patient with one another. Bear patiently with their weaknesses. All of us have weaknesses. Imagine if God did not deal patiently with us. We'd be doomed to everlasting destruction. We may have had so much confidence in someone, but then they failed us. And we're now moved to disappointment, discouragement. But God says, no, put away that discouragement. Be patient. You don't know the circumstances that they're wrestling with. You don't know what they're going through. Think of the patience that God has toward you. And now seek to emulate that patience toward those around you. He is merciful. He is long-suffering with us. Peace. The opposite of peace is warfare. It's rivalry. It's strife. We love one another and we show peace so that we're quick to confess our sin. We're ready to forgive one another. In that spirit, we demonstrate a desire for peace. We want to avoid strife. We're not content with allowing that strife to remain in our lives. And by forgiving, we pray for the grace to forget, to put it aside. We're not going to hold it against. We're not going to bring it up again. Love motivates us to show that peace. And as the children of God, we then confess and we pray for forgiveness. And we do that one with another because we love God and we love one another. When there is that readiness to confess and that readiness to forgive, there's peace. War, strife is gone. When we refuse to confess, when we refuse to forgive, there's strife. There's going to be warfare. We pray for the grace to walk in that manner of patience and meekness. Meekness, not only can you serve me but how can I serve you? And that's the humility that's required. Our life is not about ourselves. We exist for the glory of God and we exist to serve our God and we exist then to serve one another. How can I be used by God for those whom he's put on my path? How can I serve my parents? How can I better serve my children? How can I better labor in the service of my fellow saints? Jesus Christ was meek He was lowly. He gave himself to the service of those whom the Father had given him. That's the spirit that he works now in us as his children. A spirit of meekness. Not esteeming self, not pride, but humbling ourselves. Acknowledging that we are inclined toward these sins. And that we pray daily for the grace to overcome. Mercy, pity, and compassion toward one another. How important that mercy and that pity is in our marriages to show that kindness, to show that compassion. But verse 17, whosoever having this world's good and seeth that his brother has need and shuts up his bowels of compassion. How can you then say that you have love? You know that this person has need. You know that this situation is such that they could use your assistance. And then you pull back and you try to avoid the situation. That's not Mercy, that's not compassion. When you know someone is suffering, someone is hurting, love is expressed as that which helps. Bowels of compassion that are showing itself one toward another. Kindness, the opposite of kindness, is cruel. Be mean. Don't be mean at school. Don't be mean at home toward your siblings or your classmates. Be kind in love. Prevent their hurt as much as in us lies. And again, that kindness in our marriages, that willingness to understand and to forgive and to work with one another, prevent their hurt. Love rebukes, love chides, love admonishes, because love acknowledges the way ahead is dangerous, the consequences are many. And love understands God's holiness. Love understands the righteousness of God and God's judgment. And love seeks then to prevent the hurt of those around me. Lay aside hatred, beloved. Take up love. And in that, God shows His abundant and marvelous mercy. He that keepeth His commandments dwelleth in Him and He in Him. And hereby we know that He abideth in us by the Spirit which He hath given us. You say, but I can't show this kind of love. I'm a failure. Every day I try and I come up short. I still do things that I regret later. Beloved, apart from God's grace, all would be in vain. But God is a God of mercy and God is a God of love. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. Our Heavenly Father has worked in our hearts this love. Love isn't something human, love is something divine. God has shown us every spiritual grace as His children in Jesus Christ. While we were yet enemies, this is the wonder work that God was performing in us. And He's shown us patience. He's shown us forgiveness. He's shown us gentleness. His Spirit is dwelling within us. His divine love breaks through our hard hearts and our harsh natures. And His divine love produces those spiritual wonders in our lives. He enables us to walk in love toward the neighbor. He works in us the grace by which we resist and we put aside the evil and we do that which is right. And above all, Lord, he gives us that which is our greatest need. What is your greatest need? What is my greatest need? Forgiveness. We are murderers. There's only one alone who's able to say with regard to the sixth commandment, this commandment does not condemn me in any way. That was Jesus. Jesus was able to stand before this commandment perfectly, in perfect obedience. And he stood in our place. And he provides that forgiveness we so desperately need. He was willing to take all our hatred and envy, all of our desire for revenge, all the suffering we deserve upon himself and he works now repentance in our hearts he works sorrow he works the wonder of the knowledge of his mercy and his love behold what manner of love and he gives us to know the forgiveness that is ours beloved living before the wonder that i am forgiven that all the sins that I've committed and ever will commit have been paid for through the precious blood of my Savior Jesus Christ. Understanding how grievous my sin is against God's commandments in general, but specifically against this commandment, I realize the wonder of the love with which He loved me. And I'm motivated then to thankfulness. And the Spirit uses that as the power within us to move us then to lay aside all hatred, and to live out of that thankfulness, that love that is in Jesus Christ. Beloved, this is the power of God's sanctifying work in the hearts and lives of His children. This is the power of God's grace in you and in me, loving one another for Jesus' sake. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, forgive us. Strengthen us to lay aside those sinful desires and ambitions, cause that we might know the wonder of Thy love and Thy goodness toward us in Jesus Christ, that we might be humbled and that we might ever seek to live and to walk in a manner that reflects the work of Thy Spirit within us, showing that love, that kindness, that compassion one toward another. For Jesus' sake, amen.